Good morning, gentlemen. Well, you showed up for a sermon on tithing. It's a bunch of sadomasochists today. Reminds me of the Australian gold miner. Did you see it in the news this past week? They've been down in the gold mine three weeks while they dug them out. And they finally got a hole down there and were able to give them some supplies. No kidding. This is what one of them said when they asked him what they wanted. One of them wanted, you know, water and food. The other guy sent me, said, send me the classified ads. I'm going to look for another job. <laughs> There's a guy with some sense, you know. <laughs> uh, that was great. I think that was in the commercial appeal. I think that was the best thing in the commercial appeal all week, as a matter of fact. Okay, take your Bibles and turn to Malachi chapter 2, uh, verse 17. And we're quickly going to look at this whole lesson that we kind of left out. I kind of got carried away on dating and marriage. You know, I like that stuff. It really is important. But let's look at this bridging context, uh, really, this bridging text, uh, verses 2.17 through 3.5. And let's just take a real quick look at it before we get into the, the meat of our Study in, in 3, 6 through 12. Look at 2.17. Malachi has just finished this section on how we should, whom we should uh, marry and how we should stay married to them. And then he says in verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. You all thought that uh, Handel wrote these words. No, he got them from the Bible. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprave aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Okay, first of all, you can see in verse 17 that our lawlessness actually wearies God. You say, I didn't know I could make God tired. Yeah, you can make him tired. Not physically tired. He's not a physical being. But there is a sort of weariness that can set in. And it reminds me of when I used to be babysat for as a little kid. I mean, I was a hellion and. I'd look in the eyes of that babysitter, and I knew she was really sorry that she got there. You know, she, if she'd only known, she'd never come over. And we wearied her. Well, we can weary the Lord, who's taking care of us as our Father. How do we weary Him? He says, with your words. You say, and, and, and then look at this. Oh, how how we, what have we said? What, 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 what? That's the way we're acting. It's like the kid, you know, we used to, in, in elementary school, you make those little spit... Wads, put them on the edge of your desk and put your finger just like this. And then you wait until the teacher goes to the board and you go, ping. And Sue, sitting across, goes, ah! And the teacher turns around. And you go, what? What? And that's exactly what's going on here with the Israelites. They know what they're doing. They're pretending as though they're doing nothing. 
And here's what we do. We sometimes call evildoers good. He says, you, you weary me by saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he is pleased with him. So when we label something that's clearly evil as good, you're wearing out the Lord and it's straining our relationship. And sometimes we deny God's judgment. We say, where is the God of justice? In other words, where is justice? There's so much evil in the world and we just go on and on complaining about it. And we're acting as though we don't believe in the second coming when we act that way. So we weary the Lord uh, with our confusion of good and evil. We weary the Lord with our lack of faith in his coming back to judge all the earth. Well, he says uh, in verses one through five, he will restore us by his messenger. So he's going to take care of all this lawlessness and he's going to answer our deepest need. He said, I will send my messenger, the messenger of the covenant whom you desire. Now, some scholars suggest there are really two people being discussed here. One, when he says in the beginning of verse one, see, I will send my messenger. Some suggest that he's speaking there about John the Baptist, the Elijah figure who will prepare the way before me, as he says in the latter part of that sentence. And that may be true. But the second part seems clearly to refer to Jesus Christ as the messenger, the Messiah, because he says, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to you. Well, I'm not sure if he's speaking about two people or one person, but I I certainly know that in that second part, it seems clear that he's speaking about the Messiah, the Lord himself. Uh, He is the messenger of the covenant. But then he asks this interesting question. You think that when God shows up, you're going to be able to finally say, boy, I'm sure I'm glad you're here. But God says, who can endure the day of his coming? Can the church endure it? Look at the church today. With all this going on in the church, all the evils, can the church endure the day of his coming? And that's what Malachi is saying. You're longing for justice. You're longing for God to show up because you're quite convinced that God is an American. And he's going to answer all your political dreams, your financial dreams. He's going to finally get that wife of yours that hasn't been treating you right. Going to teach her a few things. Watch out. Who can endure the day of his coming? He will, first of all, renew our worship. He says... uh, that then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness when he shows up. And so when our worship finally gets all cleared up, it'll be because he shows up, because we'll have renewed hearts, acceptable sacrifices, and there'll be historic revival. If you look at it in in verse 3, the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord. As in days gone by, as in former years. So he refers to these great days of revival. Thinking about the days of David, the days of Solomon. He'll bring back those great days. And indeed, when the Lord shows up, that's exactly what he does. He brings back great days of refreshment and renewal, as the church has known uh, even in the Old Testament in days gone by. But you'll notice that when he comes in in verses 2 and 3, he's purifying the Levites. He's purifying the priests. And we've seen how the New Testament says that we're the Levites, we're the priests. So when he comes up, he's going to cleanse his household. He's going to cleanse his worship leaders. He's going to establish worship. And when he does come in revival, when he comes to your heart or your home or your church, he always revives worship. There's a renewed enthusiasm in giving the Lord praise. Now, he will also purge our membership. He says he's going to testify against some folks. Whoops. Here's a court case in church. Watch out. Uh, He's going to purge. And who's he going to purge? Sorcerers. And you see some scriptural references there. 
Those who are involved in witchcraft. Those who are involved in dealing with the spirits of the dead. You know, we don't think anything about old John. What's his name? I forget his name. Shows up on TV. I surf past him sometimes. Or, or I obviously don't go past completely. I sit there and watch him for a minute. John so-and-so is, is telling people about their dead relatives. And he tells them what they're saying to him. I mean, the Bible says don't do that stuff. Uh, that's, you know, Saul did that and got a whole bunch of trouble with the witch of Endor because God told him not to do it. Now, you, you ask, is channeling real? I don't know. All I know is don't do it <laughs> because God doesn't like that stuff. He wants us to deal with life. He wants us to deal with him. Why do you go back? Why does Saul go back and get the spirit of Samuel? Why didn't he just go to the Lord? So don't deal with spirits. Deal with the spirit, the Holy Spirit. And so don't look for some substitute. So he's going to testify against sorcerers. They disobeyed him. It's all in the scriptures right there. Adulterers. uh, He's going to testify against them. Perjurers. Those who lie and who testify falsely when they're under pressure. Who know that the first thing they're supposed to do when they're arraigned uh, is to plead not guilty. Just lie. Stonewall. Make them prove it. Well, courts should prove things. I'm not saying they shouldn't. But the way in which Christian people are dealing with civil courts is outrageous. We're just perjuring ourselves so that we can get the best outcome instead of being the best man. Why don't you be the best man? Trust the Lord with the outcome. So he's going to testify against you. You know, somebody else may not be able to testify against you in court. But the Lord's going to show up and testify against those who are habitual perjurers. Those who defraud. Those who cheat other people. Who... Shade their expense accounts who defraud the government on tax day. People who tell lies about their finances. People who especially take advantage of the poor, defrauding them. Believe me, when the Lord shows up, he's got a few things to talk about. And then oppressors, widows and orphans. Uh, We just saw a, a video about some people who are in need. Woe be to Christian people who don't care anything about it. I'm not saying everybody should go down there on that trip. I'm just saying that probably some of us should. And I'm saying all of us should care. People who are oppressed and we do not do anything to lift a hand. We become the oppressors. We have to be very, very careful. Christians are in the business of relieving oppression, especially with those who are defenseless, as in the days of Malachi with the widows and orphans. If you weren't connected to a man married to him or his daughter or his sister living with him, you had no protection. The economy was a patriarchal economy. So if you didn't look out for the widows and orphans, you were the worst kind of oppressor. And we have to look the same way in our own society, who are the ones who are unprotected. And you just, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out there are lots of people who are on the margins of society. And, you know, the Bible had a, had a law where you didn't reap all of, the, of your own field. You say, I own that field. I ought to be able to reap my own field. No, you ought not to be able to reap your own field. Because there's some people who are on the margins in this society and they need to be able to go into your field, trespass on your property and get some of the weed off your field. There ought to be laws like that. There ought to be at least Christians ought to have provisions like that. So when we have soup kitchens or we give to the poor and and get involved both with local poor and international poor, this is not just, you know, icing on the cake. It's not the overflow. This is the heart of our life. To care for the widows and the orphans and the people who are exposed, the people who are vulnerable. You may say, well, you know, if people would just, you know, take up for themselves and work hard. uh, You have a very naive view of your own background. 
if you happen to work hard, you have a very naive view of why you work hard. You work hard because you have hope. And someone told you that if you worked hard, there'd be uh, fruit at the end of the day. Some people have grown up in a society where they were told it doesn't make any difference what you do. And that was hammered into their heads. And so even by their own uh, psychology, they're trapped. And we are the ones who are supposed to care for the widows, the orphans, those who are exposed, those who are vulnerable, and supposed to have a very special heart for them. You'll notice also he's going to testify against people who deprive aliens of justice. Be very careful during these days on the immigration issue. I'm just saying be very careful that you don't take such a view if you, if you happen to have a, let's say, a conservative, if I can call it that, a conservative view on that issue, be very careful that you're not depriving mishpat. You know, we saw that social justice in the Bible, this word justice, it is not the same thing that we mean when we speak merely of legal justice. It's caring for those who are broken, caring for those that God cares about. Now, I know this is a complex issue and we certainly need to do a lot of things to handle the immigration issue. But just be very careful that whatever you do, you are seeing that aliens who have no citizenship rights have justice from you and that you are promoting justice for them uh, in our own culture. He also will pay a little visit to those who have been irreverent. That is, those who have no fear of the Lord. And that's the root of all these problems. If you want to know why we have uh, selfish Policies is because we're irreverent. If you want to know why we're oppressing people and defrauding them and lying against them in court, we have no fear of God. Just go to court and stonewall and take a position so that you can win, regardless of what the truth is. You have no fear of God in that moment. And that really wearies the Lord when he shows up. He'll testify against it. Now, if you're like myself, you're saying, man, <laughs> looks like a looks like a really bad story because. I've probably done all those things. Probably have. But you notice that he doesn't say those who have ever committed sorcery, those who have ever adulterated, those who have ever perjured. No, he says those who are adulterers, that is, unrepentant, sustained adulterers uh, who never seek repentance from the Lord. So he's describing people about whom it could be said, you know what, you want to know what that person is? That person's a perjurer. That's basically what they are. That's their character. So that's the sort of person that we're talking about. Those who do not repent. And there are some of those, says Malachi, in the church. Who can endure the day of his coming? We've got some folks in our churches who are committing things and and not repenting. Uh, you know, there was there was a leader in a church uh, not too long ago who said, you know, someone sins against me. I'll forgive him once and then I'm going to pay him back. Watch out. Okay, uh, let's look at uh, verses 6 through 12. And here we come to uh, a very important topic. It involves something very precious to us. I mean, you can talk about my wife, but when you start talking about my money, man, you're messing with me. Uh, and here it is. Let's look at 3, 6 through 12. God goes on to say, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. 
But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you. Because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. That there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven. And pour out so much blessing. That you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops. And the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then the nations will call you blessed. For yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Okay. Uh, in the midst of our sinfulness uh, and our fickleness, God shows himself as being what we call immutable. And this is a theological term as well as a term in your dictionary. In the immutability of God. God says, I, the Lord, do not change. Now, why should we be very happy about the doctrine of God's immutability? The reason you should be very happy is that you will not be destroyed. God's immutability secures our indestructibility. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Whoop. We left out a knot uh, on your notes. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Uh, Be sure and put in not. It's the difference between heaven and hell. (laughs) So uh, be sure and write that in there. So what you have is God saying, look, you're fickle. You sometimes weary me with your words. You get involved in all kinds of rotten, terrible, horrible stuff. But I want to tell you something. I don't change one bit. When I told you I'm going to be faithful to you, I'm going to be faithful to you. So if you've given your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what your struggles have been, no matter what they're going to be today, no matter what they're going to be tomorrow, no matter what your sins are tomorrow. You hearing me? If you give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, he's saying, I'm going to be faithful to you. Now, he may have to knock you over silly to discipline you, but he's going to be with you. And his discipline is because he is with you. And he says his immutability secures our indestructibility. Now, secondly, his immutability secures our recoverability. Is that a word? I don't know. I think I made it up. But because he does not change, we now have the possibility of changing ourselves from Evil to good. And he says, uh, look, if you'll return to me, I will return to you. What a wonderful promise. He says, look, you're he's saying to them, you're basically under a curse right now. And the reason is that uh, you uh, have withheld tithes and offerings. You're not bringing in offerings to the Lord. But look, you can change. I, I haven't written you off forever. I'm disciplining you. You're experiencing the curse in your life. You turn your back on me, you're going to experience discipline. All you have to do is just turn back and you'll experience blessing. You say, wow. And he won't harbor any ill will. He won't hold a grudge against me. No. God is not like you. (laughs) He's not like me. He says, come to me, return to me, and I'll turn right back to you and we'll be in a relationship of blessing together. He's saying that to the whole church. So let's turn to him. I mean, turn today, whatever it is in your life. Turn today and then expect to be in a relationship of blessing with him. So let's look and see what he says. First of all, we see that we need to recover. If you look at verses seven through nine, he's 
showing clearly here that we are doing something really bad. We have disobeyed the Lord's command, number one. He says, you have turned away from my decrees. And by decrees here, he doesn't mean his eternal decrees whereby he ordains whatsoever comes to pass. He's talking about his precepts, his commandments. So we have turned our back on his commandments. He gave us a commandment right to our face, made it very clear. Doesn't take you know anyone over about four years old to get it. And we just turned right around, went the other way. I don't want to do that, Lord. So we have turned away from his decrees. Our sin, first of all, is obtuse. Is that a word? Yeah, I think it is. I didn't make that one up. That means that we are dull and insensitive. Obtuse is, is dull, like a flat or blunt instrument. So we're just dull and insensitive. He says, return to me and I'll return to you. Uh, our sin is outrageous. He says, look, he says, guys, will a man burglarize God? <laughs> I mean, are you a nutcase? Well, I mean, there's one thing to burglarize somebody else. But you're going to go into God's house and steal against him. Would would anybody in their right mind do that? And, of course, we ask our famous question, how do we do that? Uh, and he gives his answer. You rob me by withholding tithes and offerings. Our sin is obnoxious because we we were faking like we didn't do it. How do we do that? Here we go again. Flipping that little spit wad. Who, me? That's what we're doing here on our tithes and offerings. Now, hold it just a minute. Is that gross or, you know, or net? Or is it, you know, so on. We have all kinds of questions. Asked. Is that Old Testament or New Testament? Da, 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 da. So our sin is obnoxious and it is obvious, he says, in tithes and offerings. It's real simple. You want to know how you robbed me? That's how you did it. Have any, have any of you ever been burglarized? Anybody had your house broken into people? Okay, a lot of you have. How did you feel? You know, you come back to your house, you know, and the door is open that you left locked, and you know something's really bad going on in there. And you walk in, and you see all your drawers pulled out, and, uh, and you see your wife's jewelry gone through, and people have been going through your things and throwing them around the room. And, uh, yeah, you feel completely violated. And you're about ready to kill somebody. That burglar walked through the door. You'd like to get your hand on their neck and just take their life out. Uh, it's just it, you can feel completely violated. You are incensed that someone have the gall to go onto your property, go through your things, take what they want. And uh, although I have to say, uh, my, it was my first month in pastoral ministry back in 1981. We had our house burglarized, and they took all the sterling silver. The only sterling silver I had were these old family pieces that were given to us at our wedding. So they had sentimental value. They took, oh, that's all they wanted. They were specialists. <laughs> so, they, so they only took sterling silver. But, you know, after that, it was really great because we didn't have to lock our doors anymore. I mean, who wants an old, you know, who wants an old 10-year-old beat-up television, an old couch, you know, to have to, I mean, we didn't have anything. It was great. It was really liberating. You might try that sometime. Uh, but the sense of violation was rather intense. And you feel almost weirded out by just being in your house. Because someone else has kind of invaded your space and been through you. Just, especially the women. They just feel weird. Uh, because someone's been in, in your space. Well, if that's the way you feel, God says, let me tell you why this really gets to me. You've burglarized my house. You've gone through it. Gone through the drawers, 
taken what you wanted, left behind what you didn't want, took what didn't belong to you. And I feel burglarized. That's, that's what God is saying. That's what it feels like if we can put human emotions to it from God's perspective to have tithes and offerings withheld. And you'll look at number two here. As a result, we have incurred the, the Lord's curse. And this is not the first time in Malachi. You get it in one fourteen and 2.2. Two. Uh, you see that we greatly offended him. You were under a curse. And that's a strong word there. We continue to offend him. He says, you are robbing me. And thirdly, we all offend him. The whole nation of you is continuing to rob me and offend me. So it's deeply aggravated. So a whole nation. Yeah. Basically, he's saying, look, you Levites, it starts with you guys. And then you've trained the whole church how to be sloppy in this manner. You, you, you steal and you've trained the entire church how to steal. And so there is lack of blessing on the entire church. They've been well trained by these thieving Levites. And so we're the Levites in the New Testament, as we've learned. And we've trained a whole bunch of other people to do. We've, some of us even trained our children how to steal against God. Uh, if we take this text seriously. But if you look in verse uh, 10 through 12, you can see that we can recover. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. How do we do this? First of all, we must obey his simple precept. And his simple precept is this. Tithe. Tithe. What is a tithe? The word tithe means 10%, one-tenth. Bring the whole tithe. You know how the Lord says that? (laughs) The Lord must have had a lot of experience with Presbyterians. Because he gets really specific. He doesn't say bring the tithe in the storehouse. He says, now you bring that whole tithe in the storehouse. Don't you start out with the tithe when you leave the house. And then tell me the dog ate the rest of it. You bring that whole thing in here. So he uses the word whole to emphasize what he's talking about. Am I on the right page here? Yes. All right. Uh, And it is a 10% of the harvest. And so when you think about what 10% means in our day, sometimes it's not as easy to figure out. But basically, it was 10% of the gain that a person had on their property. It was an agrarian economy. So sometimes people will say, well, does this mean salary, or dividends off my stocks, my investments, and so on? Well, you just figure out what the engine of your economy is. In the agrarian economy, the engine was the field. That's what produced the fruit. You just figure out in your life what's producing the fruit. It may be a manufacturing company that you own. It may be a business that you own. Or it may be investments that you've got. It seems to me you need to figure out what that is. What's producing the income uh, for your business. And obviously we're not talking about the gross income on a business. We're talking about the part that comes out uh, as profit in your business. Uh, and uh, that is if you own it wholly or the part that comes out is salary. So it is the harvest. And sometimes that's not so easy to to compare to current day, but do your best. The immediate purpose of a tithe was three things in your Bible. First of all, it was for worship festivals. And you get that in Deuteronomy 14. People brought tithes and ate them. 
It's so interesting to me sometimes when current day Protestants will say, you know, we want our we don't want to just have fellowship supper here and, you know, pay for lights and and heating and air. And what what do you think the tithe was used for in the Old Testament for a big party? Worship party. Come together for a whole week and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Celebrate the Passover. And people bring tithes and they ate the tithes. So offerings are meant to be given over to the Lord. And the Lord, out of his grace, gives it back to us and says, now you all eat. You're my family. You all just have this big dinner and you worship me while you eat. Now, that's that's fellowship. And that's a legitimate function of the tithe. Also, the tithe was for the Levites compensation. You knew I wouldn't miss that one. (laughs) So it's for teachers compensation. So you want to go out and the problem when they came back from Babylon was they had the Levites out, you know, in their minds, getting a real job, get out there in the fields and work like everybody else. And they did. And it angered God. He said, get those Levites back in the temple, studying the Bible and teaching it. Because people need that. And that is a real job. So you want to be sure in your church that you're adequately compensating teachers so that your people are adequately taught and led and worshiped and counseled and pastored and all the rest. That comes from the tithe. That's its purpose. And thirdly, it was for caring for the poor. In Deuteronomy 14, you'll also see that tithes were given for the poor. Now, uh, uh, there were actually, some people think there were three tithes. Two that were annual and one that was triannual, triennial. So some suggest that maybe the Israelites in their better days were giving 23 and a third percent. Uh, I noticed a whole lot of people hadn't studied that real carefully. But uh, let's just assume there's one and divide it out these ways. Those are all legitimate uses of the tithe. That was in the Old Testament. But the ultimate purpose of a tithe, Old Testament or anywhere else, is to proclaim God's ownership over us. Because what, what we're saying is, and this would be in an agrarian economy, if I tithe off the land, I'm giving, as a tenant farmer, I'm giving that portion to the owner. Now, in Mississippi, I believe that'd be a 33 and a third percent, would it not, to the owner? Uh, and you get to keep two thirds. You give a third to the owner. Because you're a tenant farmer. But in God's economy, it doesn't ask for a third. He says, give me a tenth. That's tribute to the master and the owner of the land. So when we give a tithe, we're basically saying, God, you own me, body and soul. It's all yours. You only ask for 10 percent. And I'm frankly very grateful that he gave us the tithe, because if he didn't, those of you who really have experienced the grace of God and are grateful for it, you would assume that you're supposed to live on 10 percent and give 90 percent to him. I mean, that would only make sense, wouldn't it? And you'd wonder about whether you should even live on the 10 percent. But God says, now, cool your jets. Look, I just want a token, just a token that I own it all. Just give 10 percent. That's enough to remind you. That'll be enough to remind you who owns you. And that'll be enough to show to me that you're giving me your heart. So he gave us this low number, I think, in one way, just to relieve our consciences. I'm so grateful for those of you who are especially uh, conscience, conscious and Sensitive, have sensitive consciences. You ought to be very grateful that he gives us this number. That doesn't mean you can't give more than 10%, but at least we've, we've been given a minimum, I think, for that purpose. But the ultimate purpose is to show who owns us. Now, let's ask the question for a moment about the New Testament relevance. That would always come up in a study on tithing. 
And we need to take this very seriously because anytime you're looking into the Old Testament, as we've been doing this past year, you've got to be careful about how you take something out of the old and bring it into today. A lot has happened since the fifth century B.C., like Jesus coming to this world, like apostles writing epistles, like a new covenant. A lot has happened. We want to be sure that we understand the current relevance and meaning of a text on the other side of the crucifixion and resurrection. So let's be very careful in how we lift that truth out of the Old Testament and bring it into the new. Now, when folks think about tithing, they normally think of it as an Old Testament concept. Our giving must be 10 percent, must be tithing. Let's take a look at this. The first concept is Old Testament tithing. And you can look at those verses and many others. The second way in which we look at this is that the New Testament teaches a series of things that are very important about our giving. Number one, it must be cheerful. We get that in 2 Corinthians 9 7. God loves a cheerful giver. He does. Secondly, we see from the New Testament, he loves a generous giver. And he uses in his letters to the Corinthians the example of the Macedonians. Those of you at Second Presbyterian know that we're studying Paul's journeys through Macedonia last week and this week. And he brags on them. It's one of his favorite churches. And he uses the, the generosity of the Macedonians to leverage uh, the Corinthians a little bit. He says, why don't you guys be like those guys? So he encourages generosity. Also, we're told in the New Testament that our giving should be sacrificial. He says uh, that we should give sacrificially. The New Testament teaches us to plan our giving. Paul says to the Corinthians, lay aside these offerings. And when I come, I'll take them and give them to the poor in Jerusalem and so on. And it must be proportionate. Those of you who are wealthy should give more than those who are poor. Paul teaches that in his epistles. Now, that's the way we normally would look at teaching about giving in the Bible. But you notice from your notes, what's left out is that folks forget that the Old Testament has taught all these things. First of all, the New Testament teaches tithing and the Old Testament has taught all these things, too. In Matthew 23, 23, Jesus is excoriating the scribes and Pharisees for their nitpicking, pharisaical, uh, self-righteous way of trying to obey the law. And he says to them, uh, he gives seven woes against them. And in one of those woes in Matthew 23, he says, you are so self-righteous and meticulous. You tithe your garden herbs, your mint, your dill, and your cumin. You're very careful. You weigh them out, count the leaves, give one out of every ten. You're very careful. But you ignore justice and mercy and love. You strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. It's a very humorous analogy. And here's his solution. He doesn't say, forget the mint and dill and coming and be socially just. No, he doesn't say that. He says, you should obey the latter, that is, the heavier, weightier matters of the law, and not neglect the former. Tithing your garden herbs. Fine. That's good. So do both. Just because you're doing the weighty matters of the law doesn't mean that you ignore the light matters of the law. It's all the law of God. So what he says in Matthew 23, 23 is go ahead and 
tithe. It's not the heaviest matter of the law. But keep that in your whole life while you're also caring for the poor and being honest and a lot of things that are more important. And one way in which we see that there's a parallel with old and new is that the New Testament doesn't give us anything new on giving. These these principles that a lot of people will teach and say, now, this is the New Testament teaching on giving. It was already in the Old Testament. Because tithing involves all those things. Tithe and offerings. Tithe is what you give as 10%. Offerings are what you give beyond that, or they can be other sorts of gifts. And it always involves that. So you see there's a connection between old and new. I want to build on that in a moment because uh, there's a theological model that helps us to see that. In fact, let's go on to that now, and we'll see that he says not only to tithe, but to tithe to the church. Well, here you go again, Wilson. It's easy for you to say you're a pastor in a church. Well, okay. I have a biased perspective. That's true. So let me let me look at the scriptures and see if I can show you why I believe this. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. What is the storehouse? The storehouse equals rooms in the temple. When Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, was renewing worship in Israel, they were being revived by God as a nation. He's told them, look, let's get with it. Let's give our tithes and offerings the way we're supposed to. And they did. They obeyed. And when they did, there was not room enough in the house for it. Just like God said to Malachi. Hezekiah had to build new storage rooms on the church property because people were being obedient. You know, our church buildings are not built for obedience. They're built for slackers. <laughs> Look at your sanctuaries. How many people does it hold? How many members do you have? Our church is not built for obedience and neither was it in the Old Testament. And so when the people actually started doing what God said, whoa, <laughs> it's like uh, when revival hit in the 18th century of the Great Awakening. Uh, some really funny things started to happen. They said in the coal mines that the mules who carried out the coal didn't know how to uh, respond anymore because all their. Orders had been given to them as curse words. <laughs> so when revival broke out and people stopped cursing, the donkeys didn't understand them anymore. And they couldn't get the coal out of the coal mines. I mean, that's a real problem. And they found that the, the business at the pubs went way, way down. And people started you know, losing business you know, through, through alcohol business because people were starting to get drunk. And then they also noticed in the shipyards, this was true in, uh, in Great Britain, when revival broke out, People started returning all their stolen property from the shipyard. And literally, they had to build new warehouses to store all the property being returned from the homes of their workers. So when revival breaks out, it's just amazing how it changes everything, even the architecture of the place. Well, it did, it did in the temple with Hezekiah. And so when he says, bring your tithe into the storehouse, that's what he's talking about. Hezekiah was you know, a previous king years ago. And so... Uh, the, the storehouses were rooms on the side of the temple. So he's basically saying, bring your tithe into the temple. There's a reason for that, as we'll see in a moment. Now, what is the temple? We've seen in previous studies that the temple in the New Testament is the people of God. In 1 Corinthians 3:16 and 17, you get it. He says to us in the plural, you are the temple. And 
Everyone should be very careful how they deal with the temple, God's people, because God's invested with his people. We are his temple. He says in first Peter chapter two, we're the living stones of the temple. So the temple today is the dwelling place of God's spirit, just as it was in the Old Testament. But rather than stones out of sandstone or limestone, as in Israel, the stones are people. So the people are the dwelling place of God. So when you assemble for worship, you are the temple, the dwelling place of the Shekinah glory. So when we look then at what it would mean for us, if a tithe is a New Testament concept as well, we would bring it to the church where the assembly of God's people are. For those of you who have a uh, Presbyterian sort of background, which would be less than half of you here, uh, you know, we have said theologically that there are three marks of the church. Number one, uh, it is a, an assembly of God's people where there is the true preaching of the word. Secondly, the right administration of the sacraments. And thirdly, church discipline. And, of course, Presbyterians have elders. Others of you have other forms of government. But where the word is actually put into practice and people are held accountable. Now, the Presbyterians for 500 years have been saying that's what constitutes a local church or even a denomination. Right preaching of the word, administration of the sacraments and church discipline. So when you think about the church, that's what it is. Now, in America, in the 20th century. We had an explosion of parachurch organizations because, uh, for one thing, as the church started to divide in thousands, tens of thousands of denominations, we had smaller churches. And a lot of times we couldn't do things in the community as one church. What we could do is several churches. Uh, also, we're a very entrepreneurial people. And a lot of Christian men didn't want to waste their time with the red tape in the institutional church. And so they wanted to form organizations where they could get things done faster. So we have a huge parachurch uh, system. For example, in this city, uh, I know your churches are involved just like ours is. But I think our church probably supports something like 50 agencies. Some of you, some of the agencies are actually represented in this room. Uh, Lots of parachurch organizations. And those of you who have been Christians for a while undoubtedly have been solicited and have Capitulated and you are giving to parachurch organizations like I do because uh, we care about the work of Jesus Christ through all kinds of institutional forms. So we want to promote the parachurch. The West has been given particular privileges in financial wealth. We've been given an entrepreneurial spirit, a can do sort of attitude. And we've been given ideas and structures and, and uh, civil uh, legal uh, uh, legitimacy. And we want to use all those opportunities to promote the kingdom. So I'm all for parachurch and I encourage us to support them. But not with your tithe. Bring the whole tithe into the temple, into the church. Why? Because you don't own it. It's not yours. You don't decide where it goes. No matter how much you like your particular concern, like I like some of mine. I don't take what doesn't belong to me and give it to them. I take what belongs to me and give it to them. So I give beyond the tithe to them. And then when the tithe comes in that doesn't belong to me and the elders in this church decide that they'll give a portion of what comes into Second Presbyterian to some parachurch organizations. Great. They're the Lord's representatives through the deacons in our church. The deacons actually decide. But. They're the Lord's representatives to decide what to do with the Lord's money that doesn't belong to me. 
And I don't get thank you notes from our church. I get thank you notes from everybody else to whom I send a donation. Thank you notes, thank you notes. And I always check my thank you notes because tax time, I've got to have all my thank you notes there, all my receipts. I do not get a thank you note from the church. Why? So when's the last time you got a thank you note from somebody who said, I really appreciate your stop thieving me. Thank you for not stealing from me. You don't get thank you notes for not stealing. You don't get thank you notes for giving somebody what is theirs. It's their property. So if your church sends thank you notes, stop it. It's inappropriate. It's not you. Who are you to thank? It's the Lord. It really is his personal ownership over his property. He's got some of his property probably in some of your bank accounts. I suggest you get it out of there, get it where it belongs, into the storehouse. Because we are the people of God, we are the temple, and we must bring the tithes into the storehouse. So then what you find is, when that happens, blessing starts to occur. And we'll have more parachurch organizations than we do now because people will be giving beyond the tithe because God will figure out a way to prosper them in such a way they can give more than the tithe. And he will prosper the churches who are being obedient and they'll be more involved in our community and more involved in parachurch organizations and direct missionary work. Now, just quickly, you'll see three models that we've used here in our church. You can look over those. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them. But just to give you an example, then, of how you could possibly look at the tithe. You can combine all of your church giving into a tithe and then give beyond the tithe to these other causes. That would be what I call a conservative model. Or you can you can combine your general ministry fund with your church world missions fund and then give beyond the tithe to other things, even some of them in your church. Or you can be aggressive about it. Give a tithe only to the general ministry fund and then give another tithe to other things through your church that you designate. Then even more gifts beyond that depends upon your level of income and and uh, the way that you've managed your finances. But that's the way you want to look at the tithe. C, the tithe is not only to the church. The tithe is ultimately to the Lord. He says that there may be food in my house. Now, this model I want to walk with, uh, with you for, through for just a moment. This is where, to me, the joy comes from. We're told in the Scriptures, you're wasting your time if you give begrudgingly. So whatever you give, give cheerfully. I mean, here's the law. You not only got to give a tithe and offerings. You've got to enjoy it. <laughs> so no complaining, no grumbling. What you'll find is once you get into this, grumbling is the last thing you think about. There is a joy that goes with it because it is the Lord that you're directly honoring. Now, look at this model I've put out here for us. In the left-hand column, you'll see an event that took place in Genesis 14 when we first see the concept of a tithe. It is after Abraham has rescued a lot and defeated some enemies And this weird figure, the king of Salem, Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. Melchi means my king and Zedek means righteousness. We've seen that word in the prophets. Melchizedek shows up, this mysterious figure. He he seems to have no genealogy. A weird figure comes from what later becomes Jerusalem. In those days, it was called Salem. And he shows up and Abraham has a form of communion with him. They eat bread and wine. And then Abraham gives him a tithe from the booty that he had just earned in winning the wars. He gives a tribute to Melchizedek because Melchizedek is recognized as the king of Salem. So the king receives tribute. Hebrews 7 says... That Abraham tithes to Melchizedek because the lesser tithes to the greater. 
Aha. Key principle in tithing. The lesser tithes to the greater. And Abraham was tithing because he was showing Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Now, if you're a Jew, nobody's greater than Abraham. Except for Melchizedek. Because Abraham tithed to it. Now, you come into the Old Testament later on in Deuteronomy. After Moses is delivering the people out of Israel. And how does this idea of tithing morph? Well, now you have the Old Testament believers who are what? Children of Abraham. Who are now tithing to the temple. Which is the dwelling place of God. So now the Old Testament believers tithe to the temple, which is the dwelling place of God, to show that God is the greater and the Israelites are the lesser. So it's just a reminder of who's boss. Now, what about the New Testament? If you look at the bottom, the Galatians 3.29 basically says this, that through faith in Jesus Christ, we are all sons of Abraham. We're the children of Abraham. Through faith in Jesus Christ. And we are taught in Hebrews. Uh, is that text left out? It sure is. In Hebrews 7, we're taught that Christ is the priest after the order of Melchizedek. And the church, as we've seen already in these texts mentioned here, is the temple of Christ. So as the, now the Abraham line we are tithing to the Melchizedek line, showing that Melchizedek is greater than we are. Showing that Christ, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, is greater than we are. So when we tithe, it is a declaration of the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is to be honored above all. And the children of Abraham tithe to nobody but the priest after the order of Melchizedek. Because there's only one king. Gentlemen, in the first century of this church, we were slaughtered for declaring that there was some king other than Caesar. Because Caesar was the one who got our tribute. And when we came to Christ in that first century, from the Acts of the Apostles, you can see this. We were slaughtered because we claimed there was a king. And when you give a tithe, you're proclaiming that there is a king and you are his subject. That's how important tithing is. That's the reason it's good to do it within worship. It's an act of worship that elevates Christ after the order of Melchizedek. I've often said that, you know, when revival breaks out, we'll probably start the ushers in our church will bring down the offering in wheelbarrows. Because we'll be showing how great Jesus is. This is how great you are. We can't even carry the offering down here. You know, as one kid was bragging about how wealthy her father was. And another kid was bragging about how wealthy his daddy was. And then the preacher's kid says, you ought to see it. It takes eight men to carry down my dad's salary every Sunday morning. <laughs> but it's not the preacher. It's not the preacher. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the messenger of the covenant. Now, secondly, we must not only obey his simple precept, but believe his simple promise. And what, this is the only place in the Bible you ever get this. He says, test me. Try it out. It's the only place in the Bible. He tells you to test God. Who are you to test God? One place. He will bless you. When? He'll certainly bless you later. 
when the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and you have the land that does not throw off its fruit, doesn't just drop it on the ground and let it rot. That fruit is there. It's luscious. It's your land. It's a delightful place. You're going to see what your inheritance is one of these days. And he is blessing you right now. He's preparing a place for you. And what you're giving is such a small tribute to what he's done for you. But you also will experience blessing now. I don't mean this is not the health, wealth and prosperity gospel. In the Old Testament, there was a sense in which he was saying to them clearly, you obey me and I'm going to make this land fruitful. We don't have a land. We're people in dispersion. So this land does not have theological value as it did in the Old Testament in in Israel. Their land doesn't have theological value either. The land that is ours is coming down out of heaven. That's what has theological and eschatological value. However, God blesses you in such a way he promises to be with you. He promises to provide for you. He promises to give you joy. He promises to give you a purpose in life. He promises to use you for his kingdom. He promises to make a difference through your life. I mean, what more do you want as pilgrims through somebody else's land? What else do you want? That's what we are. We're pilgrims, aliens, all of us who are followers of Christ. We don't belong to any place except to the New Jerusalem. But he blesses you now as you give tribute to him. And he will let others know about it. In other words, you're, you'll not only experience the blessing of his presence, but you'll enjoy the blessing of a reputation with other people who will say there is a person who walks with God. So it's pretty clear, isn't it? Let's uh, enjoy it. Let's give to the Lord and let's enjoy it, as he says. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving it to us today anew. We pray that we'll, we'll hear it. And obey it and believe the promises attached to it. May we, Lord, uh, delight ourselves in giving you tribute because you are great and we are small. And you are to be worshipped and we are to be the worshippers. God, keep us from legalistic and moralistic obedience. Guard our hearts from self-righteousness and self-condemnation. But Lord, open our hearts as we love you. And enable us to enjoy our relationship with you through Jesus Christ, the priest, after the order of Melchizedek. Amen. God bless you all.